welcome to the Bethel Free Baptist Church Weekly Sermons. This is the morning service of Sunday the 5th of February 2012, entitled, Our Relationship with Jesus Christ, Part 1. And the Bible reading is taken from John, chapter 13, verses 1 to 20. Here's Pastor Larry T. Curtis. Let me invite you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word, beginning in John, chapter 13. As we begin reading in verse 1, and read down through verse 20. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he was come from God and went to God, he riseth from supper, laid aside his garments, and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith, wherewith he was girded. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus saith to him, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit, and ye are clean, but not all. For he knew who should betray him. Therefore said he, Ye are not all clean. So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, The servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. I speak not of you all. I know whom I have chosen, but that the Scripture may be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it come, that when it is come to pass, ye may believe that I am he. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that receiveth whomsoever I send receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. Father, we thank you again today for your word that is before us, for your preservation of this word, for your spirit that lives and dwells within us that can give us understanding and help us, Lord, to apply these words to our lives. Father, we pray that as we are gathered here together this morning, Lord, and as you look upon us 
and know our needs even greater than we know them ourselves. I pray, Lord, that you would touch and speak to hearts as only you can. I pray, Lord, that you would meet the needs of each one that is here. Lord, whether that need be a need of salvation, a need of returning to you, a need of, of, of encouragement and building up of challenge, Lord, you know each one. And we pray, Lord, that it would be a time that we would all know that we've been cl drawn closer to you through your word and through your spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen. For some time I have thought about, prayed about doing a series through the book of John. It's a wonderful book to go through chapter by chapter and verse by verse. For most, it's usually the first book that we recommend that a person read when they go to God's Word. And as we begin to look through the book of John, we find that those first 12 chapters of John, they deal so much with Jesus Christ and His public ministry that He was here and involved in. In chapters 13 to 17, he is still ministering, but his attention turns to what his ministry and fellowship is to those that are nearest to him, his disciples, his apostles that he had chosen. In our reading that we have read today here in chapter 13, it begins, as we see in the first verse there, at the end of the institution of the Lord's table, the Lord's Supper that we have before us here this morning in our service. We do this as we remember Him until that day when we will once again be with Him personally and we'll not need something to remind us of Him it's here that the Scripture picks up with our Lord showing us a great example of what humility is really all about. He tells us here in verse 15 that He is giving us an example. When you stop and think about it, when you think of who the Lord Jesus Christ is, and you look at what he is doing here in getting down on the floor and washing his followers, his disciples' feet for them. It makes for a great example that allows us to recognize just how remarkable that it really is, just how valuable that this lesson should be to us. In fact, we find that as we look at this example that Jesus was giving us, we find before us an act of love that is given so totally and completely and entirely by grace. And I think so many times that's missed in this reading. The humility is vital. The humility is important. And we'll be looking at that this morning and this evening as we look there God willing, we want to take just a couple of points this morning, a couple of aspects of our relationship with Jesus Christ, and then a few more this evening. But the simple truth is, is that as we look, you know, there 
were all kinds of reasons why the Lord Jesus Christ, when you look at it in the natural as we so often tend to do when we're looking at things, there's so many reasons that could have caused him to be reluctant to show the kind of humility that he's showing here to his disciples. Stop and think a moment. As he has gathered there in this room and has instituted this table that is before us, there was a man in that room called Judas who the Lord knew was just about to betray him to the authorities. Peter was there. The Lord knew and would tell him shortly that here's one that when it came to the crunch, Peter would deny that he knew the Lord Jesus Christ, that he had anything whatsoever to do with him there in that room. All of these that were gathered there as his apostles, matter of fact, Jesus will let them all know that when it comes to the crunch, every one of them are going to abandon him. Nobody's going to be there when the time comes. And yet, in spite of all of that, in spite of knowing what they in their humanity were about to do to him, he humbles himself in a most vivid example of the intimacy of his love, the love that he felt for them, the love that he felt for the ones that would betray him, that would deny him, and that would abandon him in just a matter of hours. That's not exactly what would usually come natural to any of us. Have you ever noticed you don't have to raise your hand. But have you ever noticed how your attitude changes? I mean, so quickly. When somebody that has offended you, and I mean, it might have been by word, it might have been by deed, it might have been by something, but in some way, somehow, that person has offended you. And suddenly you come across their path once again. Isn't it amazing how that just suddenly you can have nothing to say whatsoever? <laughs> you might have been talking away in a conversation, but suddenly you got nothing to say. Have you ever noticed that uh, for some reason you might just find it more comfortable to be on the other side of the room? Or maybe on the other side of the church. <laughs> it's more comfortable to put that distance, to sit somewhere else, to purposely avoid that person because of what they've done. Most of the time, to be quite honest, folks, you don't have to think about it. As a matter of fact, that's usually why we act that way is because we don't think about it. We don't let him that should be ruling and reigning in our hearts and our lives, we don't let him 
impress upon us what we should really be thinking because that wouldn't be easy. And so we tend to act by the flesh without thinking. It just comes natural. Have you ever noticed how much you can tell even just in a handshake without a word being spoken? You ever have one of those obligatory handshakes that you know, you know there's nothing there, but they're doing it because it's the right thing to do because they're supposed to shake your hand, but there's certainly, there's certainly nothing there that is relaying to you something positive, something warm, something friendly. Amazing what a little action can say without a word being spoken. A certain look on the face, just a, a turning away. Say, folks, if we're honest, we've all been there at some point or another. When we've acted without thinking, we've acted the way the flesh acts. I'm saying as we look at Jesus Christ humbling himself and washing his apostles' feet here, let's not miss the fact that these that he was bowing before, he had every reason in the natural to be offended. Why should he humble themselves before them when they were going to betray him to the authorities? They were going to deny that they even knew him. They were going to abandon him and scatter when it came down to being identified with him. And yet, in spite of that, he humbles himself. That's why I'm saying the humility is important. But folks, don't miss the grace. <laughs> Sometimes it's a whole lot easier to show that humility when it's somebody that we really like, <laughs> somebody that we really respect, somebody that is on the right page of our book and not on our blacklist. <laughs> but I'm saying, please notice, Jesus says he's giving this to us as an example, you see, the love of Jesus Christ for these men in that room, in spite of all they were about to do to him, his love rose above all of those things. And can we not understand that because isn't grace supposed to be the unmerited favor of God towards us? Was Jesus Christ not God? And he surely, in this example, is showing a love to them that was unmerited, that was undeserved, that was not earned in any way whatsoever. Jesus gave himself to his disciples just as he does to us today. Without reservation, Brother Steve, without conditions, we often want to put those conditions. We'll be nice to somebody as long as they, or we'll be nice to somebody as long as they don't. We place these conditions, and if they do something that is outside of that, and we get offended, uh, we may not say anything nasty because we're good, solid Christian folks. <laughs> but we sure let them know. We sure let them know 
in all of our ways. You know that Jesus knew these men's weaknesses better than they knew themselves. Do you know that Jesus knew and knows your weaknesses better than even you? And you know what else? That person that has offended you most in life, Jesus knew their weaknesses when he loved them and died for them. He did. Because those conditions aren't there. Knowing all of these things about them, knowing that they were present right there, these were the ones. And yet, he goes and he performs this tremendous act. He knew. He knew what is the result of this very betrayal. He knew what he was going to face before the authorities. He knew what was going to happen on Calvary's hill. He knew the torment. He knew the death that he faced. He knew what it was going to be like to take on the sins of the whole world, to be separated from God the Father. Still, you know, we might think, well, you know, <laughs> Judas was the worst one of the lot. <laughs> you know that he knew exactly what was in Judas's heart. He knew what Judas would do, and yet he still allowed Judas to be there to eat with them, and he actually washed his feet right along with everybody else's, knowing everything that he did, demonstrating not only his humility, but a humility that was totally and completely by grace. His words there, in verses 13 to 15, he said, Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. Now we can get into a lot of things, and even the very act of washing someone's feet, that's one of the most humbling things. What is he showing us here? that we ought to be willing to lower ourselves to do that, which might be the most distasteful, that might be the most humiliating for someone else, just as Jesus Christ has done it for us. Of course, if we aren't careful in the flesh, those last words, I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. Do you know what will happen in the flesh? Instead of a spirit of grace, mercy, love, humility, those things that seems like that might kind of be part of what we get from the fruit of the Spirit, when the Lord's in control of our lives, when we're living as Christ would have us to live, you know that old spirit of judgment will try to get into our lives instead. And it'll deny completely the kind of humble service that Jesus is demonstrating here in the Scriptures. What is your relationship with Jesus Christ like? 
As we look today, I want us to look first of all that as we think of our relationship with Jesus Christ, folks, we must keep in mind, Jesus Christ is sovereign. He is sovereign. He is God. He said, ye call me master and Lord, and ye say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and master, if I'm doing this, you see the word Lord here, it's interesting. The original word there, curiosity, it means he to whom a person or thing belongs, about which has the power of deciding. It speaks of a master, the Lord, the possessor and disposer of a thing. It speaks of the owner, one who has control of the person, the master in the state, the sovereign prince, chief, the Roman emperor. It's a title of honor expressive of respect and reverence with which servants greet their master. This title, of course, in Scripture, hundreds of times is given to God, the Messiah, our Lord. You see, it's only, think about this, it's only in coming to recognize His rightful sovereignty only then will we begin to accept accountability to him and therefore see our sinfulness for what it really is, sin against a holy God. Every sin is a sin against him. Only in recognizing his sovereignty will his law have any binding effect on us whatsoever. And of course, only then will it matter to us if we break that law. He is sovereign over all creation. He is the creator of all that is. In recognizing his sovereignty, his sovereignty over all that exists, over all the universe, and all that's in it, we can then humble ourselves before him only then and go to him for forgiveness that we can have through his shed blood. You see, one of those passages, do we stop and think? Romans chapter 10 Verses 9 to 13, probably no verses in Scripture are used more in leading someone to Christ. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth, who? The Lord Jesus Christ. Same word. If you'll confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart... Man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Well, the Scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. 
He says, for there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek for the same Lord, exact same word, for the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, the same word, shall be saved. There is no way. People want to, to come up with all kinds of ways that they can have a relationship with God. But folks, our relationship with God can only be had because of our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Our relationship with him is dependent upon his sovereignty. When we come to know him, as these verses state, we not only recognize his lordship over all creation because that he put it there, but specifically, his lordship over us. Us surrendering ourselves to his lordship. Our individual lives under his control, owned by him, controlled by him. 1 Corinthians 16, 20 says, For ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. They belong to him. He is our possessor because he bought us with his own blood. Our relationship with Jesus Christ, it begins with his sovereignty. And folks, our relationship with him continues with his sovereignty. The sad thing is sometimes we have that point in our lives when we come to recognize him for who he is. We recognize our sinfulness and we want to be saved. We want those sins taken away. But then we want to take back control of our lives and we want to do our thing in our way in our time. That's not the way to peace and happiness and joy. He is our Lord, a Christian cannot know true happiness, cannot know true joy, cannot know true peace when they are trying to take back what they've given to him, their life. But I want you to note something else. There's another relationship here in this verse. And it's a relationship that we enter with him when we yield to his sovereignty, when we seek his forgiveness through the gospel of his death, his burial, his resurrection, because our relationship with Jesus Christ is not only he being our sovereign, but he being our savior. He's the only one. We read those verses there in Romans chapter 10. Do you know that that same verse that talked about confessing with our mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believing in our heart that God had raised him from the dead, thou, what's the next three words? Shalt be saved. Shalt be saved. 
In the next verse, in verse 10, for with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, with the mouth confession is made what? Unto salvation. He tells us in verse 13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We take people there because it tells them how to be saved. We show them that they are a sinner. We show them what the consequences of that sin is. We show them the great love of God and what God has done for them in spite of that sin and how they can be the possessors of that eternal life, how they can be saved from their sins and saved from the consequences of that. And Jesus Christ is the only one that can do that. Luke chapter 19 verse 10 says, For the Son of Man is come to seek and to what? Save that which was lost. He came to be our Savior. He came to save us from our sin. Acts chapter 4 verse 12 says, Neither is there salvation in any other for there is none other name under heaven given among men what whereby we must be saved. There is no other way. When Jesus said, as we saw there in John chapter 14 in the last couple of weeks, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Our relationship with Jesus Christ Folks, it is dependent upon his sovereignty and his being our Savior. And he is our sovereign. He is our Lord. And he is our Savior. Our sovereign God, the creator of the universe, came to be our Savior, to save us from our sins. Sovereign God that one that came to be our Savior is Jesus Christ and him alone. There is no other way. There is no other name whereby we can possibly be saved from the sin that we were born with, the sin that we live with, the sin that will eventually Reap its wages. The wages of sin is death. Unless we, through Jesus Christ, accept that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is no greater relationship on earth than to know that Jesus Christ, He is your sovereign and He is your Savior. Of course, the greatest act of love in all the world was shown to you at Calvary. We find that as we come around this table today, folks were coming to remember him. And you see, there are some other aspects to this relationship which, God willing, we will have a look at this evening. But the simple truth is, is that First of all and foremost, none of the others matter until you recognize him as the sovereign God of the universe and accept him as your Lord, your sovereign, 
and your Savior that came to save you from your sins. As we come around this table this morning, we come to remember him. The bread, symbolic of that body that was broken for us. The blood, that cup representing that blood that was shed on Calvary. That blood that Jesus Christ himself shed and placed on the mercy seat of God that our sins could be forgiven. And you see today, this that's what the table is for. It's, I'm afraid it can't save you. Matter of fact, I'm afraid there is nothing in this bread or this cup that can possibly make your relationship with Jesus Christ any better. It's only bread and it's only juice. But we come today for what it symbolizes, for what it represents. You see, this bread is there to represent Jesus Christ himself, his body that was broken for you and I. Folks, he didn't have to let them scourge him. He didn't have to let them nail him to that tree. He didn't have to to, to shed his blood and to die for you and I. But he did. He did. And it's hard to get our head around. In one sense, he could do nothing else because he was God. But in another sense, because he was God, he had all the power of the universe at his disposal. He did it for you and I. We couldn't live a life that make a worthy sacrifice. Today we also take of the cup because the Word of God teaches us that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. There's nothing that can be done about your sins. The Bible begins right from the very beginning, from the first sin in the garden when that first animal had to be killed in order for the nakedness of Adam and Eve to be covered. As we look and as those sacrifices came from Cain and Abel right the way down through, the sacrifice required blood, but there was never a blood that was sufficient to last until Jesus Christ. He was the final Passover, the final lamb for us. As we come today, you see, I hope and pray that as we come around the Lord's table today and as we remember him, I pray this can be a special time of fellowship as you remember him, as you think upon him, as you examine yourself and make sure that there is nothing in your life. You see, this is not what's going to do it for you. It's the Jesus that it represents. And as we look at ourselves in front of him, is there anything in our lives that is separating us from him? None of us would be doing any, anybody else a favor. None of us would know true fellowship if we don't face those things. That's why he says, but let a man examine himself and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. 
For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, tarry one for another. For just a moment this morning, may I say to you, I'm not your judge. We as a local church come around this table as one of the ordinances that the Lord has given to us. It is symbolic of Jesus Christ and what he did for us. There is no saving grace in it of itself. But today, it is for this body that is unified with him and unified with one another. Today, it's not to help you be saved. It's to be celebrated if you are saved. It's not something that will bring unity between us as a body. It's there to remember the unity that is ours as we come together. Today, if you're not a part of this local body, but you're a part of a sister church of like precious faith, then we invite you to join with us if upon examining yourself, you see, none of us are worthy within ourselves. The only way that any of us can take of this bread and this cup today is when our worthiness is in Jesus Christ. That's why he says, examine yourself. Judge yourself. I don't want to judge you, he said. I'd rather you judge yourself and deal with it rather than me to have to chasten you today. Be honest before God. If there's something there, deal with it now in the presence of him that we can take of this bread and this cup and together that we can know the sweet fellowship that can only come and things being right with our sovereign and our Savior, and things being right with each other. You know, the Bible tells you if you come to the altar to bring a gift, <laughs> you realize that your brother's got all against you, you've got to get up from there, go sort that out before you come back to God. Today, may we know that sweet unity. And unity comes in truth, folks, not in lies, not in hypocrisy, but when we're united in truth. Father, I thank you today. I thank you, Lord, that as we have looked into your word and have been reminded of our relationship with Jesus Christ, whom we come to remember around this table this morning. And right now in the quietness of this moment, I pray. I pray that each one would, as you declare in your word, examine themselves. Lord, and if there be anything there, Lord, that needs to be dealt with, then I pray that they would deal with it right now. It may be something with you. It may be something with another individual. I pray, Lord, that you would help us as we come and remember you, that it can be true fellowship, that it can be a time of sweet, sweet joy and peace here today as we look and recognize that because of Jesus, everything is right. Because of him, we can come worthily 
in his righteousness and not our own. I pray today that as we come around this table, that not only would we recognize and know the sweetness of that fellowship with you, but with one another as we tarry one for another. Help us, Lord. Help us, Lord, to be a united people through our Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.